This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Santa Barbara, California at the Ritz-Carlton Baccara, an amazing location. Just a two-hour drive from LAX and a 10-minute drive from the Santa Barbara Airport. But once you get here, as you come up the, the 101, you hit the coast and keep your eyes on the road, but it'll be difficult because you'll be watching the ocean as you make those winding turns all the way into town. And it's, uh, it's an amazing location. And this hotel, by the way, I'm making myself feel very old. It's almost 20 years old. Hard to believe it opened up, I think, in uh, just in 2000. So yet they've just redone the whole place. It's just spanking clean. And uh, talk about rooms with a view. That's, uh, that's intoxicating in and of itself. My next guest is the news anchor at KEYT in Santa Barbara, C.J. Ward. How are you, sir? Good. I'm doing well. Thank you. Now, you've been here almost 20 years. Almost 20 years. Yeah. It's gone by fast. I know. Now, let me guess. You, you moved here because you were sent here. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we always wanted to live here. And I started coming here in back early 80s. I surfed along this coastline and thought, ah. Oh, wouldn't it be great to live here someday? All right. You see, now the secret's out. You'd That's already it. surfed. Yep. 
Where? And I still surf. Where? Where? I'm not allowed to give that out. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, I, I surf anywhere from L.A. County line all the way up to Halama. I, I'll sometimes go up to San Luis Obispo County. But So in the, in the 19 years, because that's really what you're talking about, how has it changed? Well, housing prices have certainly gone up. Oh, that we knew. Yeah, hey, that's... Oprah moved in. Come on. Because <laughs> they're right next to Montecito. Yeah. Here. Uh, more people. I, it's, it's, and I wouldn't say just people who live here because the housing prices have kept the number of residents down. But, boy, a lot of visitors have come in. We have a lot of cruise ships now. Um, it used to be that it was you'd be surprised when you'd look out beyond the wharf and see a huge passenger ship anchored out there. Now, I think we have in the range of 25 yeah. They come in in the, in the peak of the season. And the way they do it, they, they, they try to skirt around an old law called the Jones Act. And the Jones Act, which is ridiculous, by the way, it was well-intentioned, but it ended up killing the American Merchant Marine. The original act said, and by the way, it's still in the books, that no, no, that no ship that's not flagged in the U.S. Can sail, before any, can sail between any two U.S. ports without going to a foreign port first. And that was designed to help the stevedores and the guys in the maritime unions unload ships. So here's the problem. Every cruise ship in the United States, other than a couple of river boats, are not, they're not registered in the United States. So they can't go between Santa Barbara and LA or Santa Barbara and San Francisco. They've gotta go from Santa Barbara to Canada or they've gotta go from Santa Barbara to Mexico before they can go to San Diego. It's nuts. Wow, and, and the Mexico, if I remember right, was one of the reasons why we have so many cruise ships at this point is because of some of the violence maybe five, six, seven years ago down in Mexico when some of the cruise ships changed their route exactly. to come here. And so that's when we started, that's when we started to see a lot see, of them. See, it's discovery by accident. It is. Or by default. Well, people would, people would walk up and down State Street during when they were here in town, and they'd come back to the ship and go, wow, you've got to come back here. We're coming back here. This is beautiful here. Well, when I first moved to Los Angeles as a correspondent for Newsweek back in 1971, the very first trip I took was up the coast of Santa Barbara because, number one, I could, and number two, because I could go to the harbor, and in those days, they'd actually rent you a boat, and you could zip <laughs> around. Like, like, it was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. And, of course, coming up the 101, uh, which is the preferred way to do it, if you're coming up 101, every time you make a turn, you're actually at the water line. Right. Right. All the way up to, and then there are all these little secret places like Padero Lane yeah. in Carpinteria. I mean, just, and of course, you're, you're paralleling the railroad tracks, too. I mean, it's a stunning view when you come around, what is it, the Ventura River right yeah, there, where yeah. all, of a sudden, all of a sudden the coastline opens up to you, and, and you're well. looking straight up the coast, and where yeah. you know you're home, or almost home. Exactly. All right, so we know the real estate prices have increased, yeah. right? But what about the character of the destination? You know, I think... Um, the community's closer over the last couple of years. We've had a, some big disasters. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, as you may know, I'm also a fireman. So when you have fires, it's near and dear to my heart because right. I know how fast that fire was moving. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a fast-moving fire, and it went on. I mean, bef it started two weeks before it actually made it to Santa Barbara. And it started in Santa Paula. So if anybody knows the geography and how far Santa Paula is from Santa Barbara, you You'd be amazed to know that that fire went from Santa Paula down to Ventura and then straight up the coast. And my daughters, when the fire first broke out, you know, they're in their teens. They said, is this, is this fire ever going to make it to Santa Barbara? I'm like, no, it's not going to make it to Santa Barbara. Well, here's the crazy thing about that fire. That fire was moving at about two and a half miles an hour. Oh, yeah. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot. Yeah, try fighting one. Right. You can't. You can't get ahead of it. And they just couldn't put it out. Yeah. Well, and, and the scary part is it was burning in in um, areas where we were told by firefighters there was no known last time that it burned. 
you know, over Carpinteria, the foothills above Carp and some of the areas above Montecito, they had no recorded history of those areas burning, so you can imagine how thick the brush was. Now, where we are right now, the Bacara, they survived. They survived, yeah. This, the Bacara is quite a distance from where the fire stopped. Right. The fire stopped just as it was approaching the Santa Barbara City line from the Montecito side. Um, and then uh, they, had a, they literally had an army of firefighters lined up along all these roads and highways, and they were managed to stop it. Um, and then the weather switched. And that helped too, but then it also became a curse because within a week and a half, almost two weeks, we ended up with our first major winter storm, which then caused the mudslides. I know California is is a roller coaster of extreme weather. Yeah, and, and especially here where you've got um, just a mountain range, a slope down to the ocean, and people in between, and a lot of bad things can happen when you have that kind of topography. Exactly. Now this particular hotel, I'm, I'm feeling very old because it's 20 years old. <laughs> I remember when they first opened it. It went by fast. It, yeah, and it's a beautiful hotel. It is. Beautiful, beautiful out here. Talk about rooms with a view. Yeah. It's, it's somewhat intoxicating. And, and beaches that are just open. If, if you're looking for a place to just kind of escape and walk a beach without a lot of people around, it's, this is a great place. Now to I'm going to date myself to tell you when I really discovered Santa Barbara. And that's when Reagan was president, because the Western yeah. White House was, was here. Uh, the Western White House press corps camped out at the old Santa Barbara Sheridan, which I found out was not, a, was, was not owned by Sheridan. It was managed by, by the Peabody Corporation. It was owned by the Hyatts, but they called it a Sheridan. And, um, of course, n nobody really wanted to stay there. They just wanted to get to the beach. Right. And, and they had the best job ever if you were a White House correspondent because Reagan never did anything when he was here. He never held a press conference. He just went to the ranch and never showed up. So if you were covering the president, you were on the beach in Santa Barbara having a ball. And, you're not, and that's not far from where we are right here. You're I know. Going right up the highway. Yeah. Exactly. So what are the challenges, other than the weather, what are the challenges <laughs> for Santa Barbara right now? You know, I think the challenges are, uh, I think that some of the businesses have been struggling. Um, you know, rents along State Street have gone up a little bit, and I think they're still trying to recover from the fire and the mudslides, and uh, I, I think if you're looking economically, that's that's one. And then and housing is a major problem, too. I mean, you've got people trying to find a place to live, workforce housing. That's, that's one of the challenges here as well. When we come back, one of the things I want to talk to you about is, since you're now a local, I, I could call I it that. qualify as, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, people now, now that you're here, you've inherited a lot of friends who want to come and visit you. Yeah. And I want to know where you take them. Okay. Because to me, I go back to the days as you came around the corner on the 101, you're going to laugh at me, the old big yellow house. Oh, I remember that it's still there. It's still there, but yeah. it's, it's not there. I mean, it's, right. just, it's just emptier, I think. I mean, yeah, it is. It is, right? Yeah. But I would stop. That was my, that was my treat, you know? Uh, but then... People forget that if you take a look at maybe a 30-mile radius of where we are right now, you've got great wineries. Oh, yeah. And people think Napa. They think, you know, they think Monterey. They, they, they think Sonoma. They don't really always think about Santa Barbara. Or Lompoc. Lompoc? I, you know how I think about Lompoc? There's a prison there. <laughs> we, and that's why, that's maybe one of the things that are changing. Lompoc has an area called, they call it the, uh, the ghetto. The Lompoc ghetto. It's a wine ghetto. And... Winer, little wineries are popping up there, just like they are in the funk zone in Santa Barbara. So it, it's, they're, they're building a, rep for, a nice rep for themselves up there. Well, I know that, uh, uh, with, with a shout-out to uh, the former White House correspondent from CBS, Bill Plant, he loved covering Reagan out here because he's a wine aficionado. So if you went out to dinner with Bill Plant during the, during the Reagan years, you were, you were treated well. Yeah. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. 
remember the famous quote from Sarah Bernhardt and a few other people who said, there, you know, there's no, there's no there there, anything west of the Hudson River. Well, sort of wrong. There is a lot there west of the Hudson River. And in Santa Barbara, there's a tremendous amount of history. And joining me now, my friend, the historian, Neil Graffy, who wrote uh, uh, basically about that and, and knows all about it. In fact, we've had you on the show before. Um, and in, in the old days, um, we remember fondly Yule Hauser uh, from, uh, from, from public television, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, was always up here doing stuff with you. I had the pleasure of working with Hugh Hauser several times. A delightful person, and he was so grateful to be able to, he says for a, a, a back east boy, I think it was South Carolina, to come to California and be able to do history, he said, it was amazing. He said, you won't be able to find someone coming down to the south and doing Confederate history if they're a Yankee from up north. So <laughs> he was very grateful for his audience, and he loved what he did. But for most visitors to Santa Barbara, the history that you're talking about is surprising to them. They, they, they're not aware. Oh, it's amazing because Santa Barbara was such a small place, an out-of-the-way place, impossible to get to, and yet so much happened here. Just about every character that walked through California somehow passed through or ended up in Santa Barbara. It's, it continually amazes me. As I always say, you can't throw a stick without hitting history in Santa Barbara. Well, that includes you because you're not a local. That's, that is absolutely true. My parents made me come here, if you can believe that. <laughs> I was happy to be back in Scotia, New York, and they forced me to come out here. And then you discovered it. I discovered it, and I have just fallen in love with it, and it's what I love to do. So if you can, what is the history here? Because it's, it's, it's a broad statement to say everybody showed up, but then, of course, what really makes the history is what did they do when they get here? They, well, if you were the two match, they had some 15,000 years of figuring out how to make it all work, what plants grew, what the seasons were. Then the Spanish came here in the 1700s, and they had to figure out how they were going to make it. And I, I really have to take my hat off to what these people did. They came you know, thousands of miles from Mexico to get up here and had to start all over again. And what they had with them, they had to keep. If they broke a button, if they broke a shovel, they either had to figure out how to make it work or invent something else to take them through the next year until a supply ship came. So there's some hardy pioneers that came through here. And you know, each wave that came in here, we had the Spanish period, the Mexican period, the early American period, people coming in as the town. In the 1880s, we had people from back east, from the Midwest coming here. Go west, here. young man. Exactly. And when they got here, they were so surprised to find out the sun shines all year long. We cannot <laughs> do one season. We can do three or four seasons here. We can plant all year long. The people that came before said, you know what? We grow enough to get us through the year, and we just take the rest of the year off and enjoy the weather. But you get these people with their Protestant ethics from, you know, back east, and they're out here going, oh, let's keep going. We can make more. We can grow more. It's like, wow, these guys are really out of control. They should just sit back and relax, Yankee, relax. Well, and today, does anybody relax? No. <laughs> Only when you retire, you get to relax. So... But for the tourists that come out here, they get to relax and enjoy it all. Exactly. So what's, the, okay, here we are, X number of years after you first came here. When people come here now, what's the biggest surprise that awaits them? What's the thing they're not expecting to see? I think they're, 
not expecting to see how close the mountains are, how close the islands are, and how much of it they can see. What Santa Barbara has really excelled at having preservation and keeping the vistas open so that the mountains are in full sight from anywhere you go, the ocean is there. So many other cities, you've got the oceanfront filled with condominiums and hotel towers. Santa Barbara's beachfront is wide open and belongs to the people because a bunch of our wealthy citizens got together bought up that property and then gave it to the city or through bond measures got the property turned over to the city so we have open beachfront and you know that's the biggest surprise to me i have to tell you to see that much space that's public it's surprising you don't see it in malibu <laughs> no you sure don't yeah. and so that's because people that came here you know what we'd consider generally an outsider that moved here and immediately fell in love with the community and they gave so much our schools our hospitals our parks and that open ocean front are all because of people that fell in love with the city and decided to keep that preservation and keep those vistas open. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. You know, there's so much history here that people don't even understand. They just think they're going to a beach resort or, or a beautiful resort community. And believe it or not, we were preceded here by many people and by many animals. And the person who knows that is the curator of anthropology at the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History, Dr. John Johnson. Doctor, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So, I mean, you, look, you've lived in Santa Barbara for, for 50 years, so you've seen a lot of the changes. But what you also had the opportunity to do was to delve deeper into the history of the community and deeper into the region to find out really how it came to be. Uh, yes, I came here as an undergraduate student in anthropology at the UC Santa Barbara, and uh, over time, I later worked for the Forest Service as an archaeologist. I then got a job at the, as curator of anthropology at the Natural History Museum 33 years ago. And if I did my homework, you had a lot of eggs then. The museum was founded as a collection of bird eggs, you're correct. Uh, ba way back in 1916. So the museum's been in existence for 103 years. Wow. Are the eggs still there? The eggs are still there. If you come to our <laughs> museum, you can see eggs, among but, other things. But you're really talking about, you know, we talk about anthropology. We're talking about the Indians. We're talking about the Spaniards. We're talking about how we all came to be. Th that's correct. And one of the research projects I've been involved in is the earliest evidence for people here in coastal California, uh, working at a site on Santa Rosa Island that's we've radiocarbon dated a little over 13,000 years ago. Wow, and what was it? Well, we back in 1959, our then curator of anthropology had been researching pygmy mammoths, which were also on the islands. There was a pygmy species of mammoth. Okay, that's an oxymoron, wow. you know, pygmy mammoth, but yeah. They were out there, and he was uh, going down uh, Arlington Canyon on Santa Rosa Island, and he discovered, buried 37 feet below the ground surface, eroding out of the side of the canyon, a human femur. And it turned out there were two femora there, and he um, left them in place. You know, he went and got some of the leading experts in the country to go out there and verify that these were deeply buried. They're not the result of recent erosion. So we, back 
he didn't have the capability then of, of really dating the bone. And it, so it wasn't until uh, the 1990s that we began a project at the museum. When to you had the technology to do it. That's right. With the advances in radiocarbon dating, bone chemistry analysis, we went back and we dated the bone protein to 13,000 years ago. And we've since gone back to that site and done a big study of all the different sediment layers. Uh, and uh, we've further confirmed that that age of the bone which makes Arlington Springs man the oldest dated human remains yet discovered in North America, right here on Santa Rosa Island. And in a, well, that, in a way, that just basically threw a lot of, of, of theories out the window because you were able to say, if you think this is old, have we got something for you? Well, yes, and th this is uh, also, because these bones were found on an island, it indicates that we could demonstrate that people had Watercraft. They had means to get there. Yeah, 13,000 years ago. And so they were adapted to a coastal environment. Well, either that or they were really good swimmers. <laughs> Probably they had watercraft. I, know. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. But then you have the Chumash Indians, too. So, yes, o over time we have, uh, well, by the time Europeans arrived, the people who were living here at that time were we call the Chumash Indians. But we think that they are a very ancient group. Uh, and have been here for many thousands of years in coastal California. Now, whether they, whether they were related to this individual lived 13,000 years ago, that's a question we'd still like to answer. We, we, we can't demonstrate that. Right. Yeah. But the good news is you now have a basis of at least extending that timeline to understand there was a whole lot more going on here than people thought. That's right. We've, we've had uh, a very long uh, cultural record here of the native people that lived in this area, you know, from 13,000 years all the way through to the time of to today. And people can come and visit the museum. That's the best part. That's, that's right. We have a Chumash Indian Hall at the museum. Um, and this summer, there's other exhibits, too. We, we have, like, a Jurassic Park at the museum this Of summer. course you do. <laughs> Hopefully, is yeah. it named for Steven Spielberg? No. No. Okay, good. into the sky. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. As many of you know, every time I do my radio show, I want the fire chief on the show. And the reason why I want the fire chief on the show is not just because I'm a fireman or because I'm obsessed with firefighting. It's because they have a unique perspective on the communities they serve. They've been in everybody's house. They've been in everybody's hotel. They've been in everybody's restaurant. They know. They know the nature, the complexity, uh, and sometimes the, the gravity of the community in which they serve. And who better to tell us about it than the fire chief of Santa Barbara? Eric Nickel, how are you, sir? Great. Thanks for having me. Did you like that intro? That was fantastic. Have you been in everybody's house and hotel and restaurant? Just about. Just about, okay. <laughs> Actually, you've been around as a firefighter for 31 years. Yeah. So you, were, you were in Palo Alto? I used to be the fire chief for Palo Alto and Stanford University and then worked up in the Bay Area uh, and then worked down in Southern California. I actually started fighting forest fires 32 years ago uh, this July, or July 4th. I will tell you my one and only experience, I'm, I'm a New York firefighter, so we don't get a lot of forest fires. Back when I was a correspondent for Newsweek, they had a big fire out here called, it was in Monterey, it was called, um, I'll think of the name of it, 
But it was the worst forest fire they'd ever had in California. And I came out to cover it from Los Angeles. And because I was a firefighter, they let me go in with the, with the guys. And uh, that was a mistake because I wasn't trained for that. And people don't realize it's a different kind of firefighting. And you know what they gave me? They gave me a backpack, a shovel, and a blanket. You know about that. Yeah. And I said, okay, what's the shovel for? <laughs> and they said, well, if the fire comes at you, you have about a minute and a half to dig a hole and get in it. And I said, let me guess what the blanket's for. It's to cover you, and whatever you do, don't lift up the blanket. Guess what happened? That's exactly what happened. And then the problem was, you don't know when to lift up the blanket. You don't know when the fire's passed through. So I was waiting to hear voices. And when I finally heard voices, I said, okay, I'll give this a shot. And it was okay. I went and filed my story for Newsweek and went to the Monterey Airport. Uh, I was flying in on Use Air West, the yellow banana planes, back to Los Angeles. I had not looked at the mirror. And everybody's looking at me strange on the plane. When I got back to L.A., I get in my car, I look at the rearview mirror. My entire face was black. I mean, you don't know what you've just gone through. And you just had some serious fires here, that, I mean, not, not that long ago. We did. So, uh, you know, we're, you know, c coming up on year two of, you know, the Thomas fire and then subsequently the debris flow. I think the fire you described was the Marble Cone it fire. It was Marble Cone. Thank you. So uh, if you're a fire chief or a professional firefighter, you are a historian of the fires. Uh, I have a And by the way, I'm going to date myself. You know what year that was? I want to say that's the late 80s, perhaps. No, I'm going to really ruin the day for me. It was 77. Okay. I don't want to tell you what grade I was still in school. All right, this show is now over. <laughs> Get out. But you remember that fire. I do. Sure. Yeah. I do. Uh, you know, uh, student, we're all students of, of fire history. There's a tremendous amount of fire history around here. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of fire history in California. Frankly, the forests have been burning before man was ever here. Uh, many of these fires uh, were naturally caused before man got here by lightning. We uh, see that in Australia. Correct, correct. Uh, we've, you know, that we've suppressed the fires to the point that there's so much vegetation or fuel out there that the fires burn extremely hot. The Thomas fire that came through here in late 2017, uh, you know, we used to have fire season where you would have sort of a defined beginning and end. And fire season usually ended between Halloween and Thanksgiving. Well, now we're having fires that are starting between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then we had, you know, the, the rain and, and the debris flow. But, you know, the community really rallied together, and, you know, it's been a remarkable recovery. Um, you know, it, we're like the Phoenix. We emerged bigger, better, stronger after, after these fires. But you mentioned, Chief, that the fire was hot. It was also fast. Yeah, the fires are burning very differently. I mean, just in my 32-year career, you know, it used to be a big deal if a fire burned 1,000 acres in 12 hours, and now we're seeing 60, 100,000 acres burning in an afternoon. And it's just... Listen, think of what you just said and, and, and ponder that thought. That's staggering. Well, it's hard even for us that are professionals in doing it, and we, you know, we have the right tools in the toolbox. Uh, we have to get in and you know, prevent these fires from occurring, doing some vegetation management, cutting fuels back, treating, doing small controlled burns. Um, and it is, it, it is frighteningly impressive. And when you saw that fire, and I, I watched it, you know, it wasn't just Santa, it was Montecito, it was the, the surrounding area. I mean, it was almost going to the ocean. Well, they do say the biggest fuel break is the Pacific Ocean. I mean, a lot of these fires will burn until they hit, hit the ocean. Uh, we were fortunate in this fire that, you know, we've done a tremendous amount of work statewide to really put up some extra resources. And we were able to guide that fire back away from the, you know, the, the, the homes and the large cities and get it back out, back in the middle of the forest. And, and you established, I mean, literally, I mean, physically established a fire line of firefighters 
to stop that fire from coming into Santa Barbara. So, and, and the fortunate thing with that is that was a couple days after the fire had been burning that we could muster up these resources. The mutual aid system in California is the envy of the world. I mean, we literally, if I had an incident today, I could get probably 3,000 firefighters and, uh, you know, uh, seven, 800 fire engines, probably take me 24 to 36 hours, but I'd get them here and we'd make a difference. And, you know, we, we operate the same way on, on, where I am as a firefighter. We have 18 communities with 12 departments. So we're mutually aiding all the time. Yep. No community can stand alone. And every day we're moving resources back and forth, even just for routine medical aids. At the end of the day, the community members really don't care what your patch says, what color your fire engine is. They want you there fast. They want you to be professional and they want you to be kind. Okay, so now comes the important part of this interview. Yes. The lessons learned and then the lessons applied. What did you learn from that fire that you can apply now to either building codes or right of way that you now can apply? So we have to be much more aggressive in our vegetation management and our prevention measures. That's the first thing. We have to get in there and remove a lot of that fuel, and we can do it so it's still attractive. The second thing is, is as you mentioned, we have to harden our structures. We have to, the building codes are changing. It's gonna, we want to make it harder for the homes to catch fire. And then the third thing is human behavior. Um, we have this program in California called Ready, Set, Go. Well, you know, so many of these fires, people are ready, they're set, but they don't go. Well, the, or the fire's moving too fast, they can't go. So now it's like, ready, go. Like, pack up. If there's a fire, you go. It's not like a flood. We tell people, oh, wait till it floods and then evacuate. They evacuate in front of the flood. So we're changing around some of the tools that we have in our toolbox to get folks out of the way before the fire gets And here. by the way, I can tell you from personal experience, your garden hose is not going to save you. No. No. Homes can be replaced. Structures can be replaced. People can't. And we're not going to commit our firefighters to a situation where they're going to put their lives on the line to protect a structure. And the thing is this, when we do a mandatory evacuation, we had to do it for, for severe weather like Hurricane Sandy, we take everybody out and we say, we're not coming back. Yeah. That's it. It's time to go. We can't come back in. Exactly. I know. Until the fire front passes. What about the fire codes themselves? Well, er, the fire codes get updated typically every two to three years. And after large events like this, whether it's a wildland fire or a structure fire where there's large loss of life, we always go back and revise the building codes. So things along the building codes probably that you're going to start seeing, particularly in these high fire danger areas, are retroactive building codes. And that's something that is different because typically... Yeah, everybody gets grandfathered in. Well, we're going to take away a lot of that I thank you for doing that. That's, you know, I was talking to a fire chief here in California who was very, very upset because under the current codes, at least in his community, if let's say you owned a hotel and then you gave it to your son and then you gave it to your grandson, they didn't have to upgrade the codes because ownership hadn't changed. Correct. And that's still the case? In, in some cases, it really depends on the situation. And in your case? Well, it, it would probably trigger at least, I mean, we're in there annually to review it. If they do any sort of modernization, that's usually the trigger. So if, if they want to remodel a room, they're probably going to trigger that we've got to upgrade the fire code. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. 
state of Arkansas, <laughs> and then, of course, hung out in Boulder, Colorado, and suddenly found himself working in a winery in Napa, and then got smart and came down here. About, is that about right, Matt Murphy? I think that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> and now you're the co-founder of the Preskill Winery. That's right. People, with all due respect, have not figured out yet. They know Sonoma. They know Napa. They know Monterey. They, they know the Oregon coast. They know Washington state wines. They don't always look at Santa Barbara as a wine capital. Yeah, that's right. Despite the the movie, you know, uh, sideways. Well, you know, uh, yeah. And how's your Merlot doing? Right. I think that was the big takeaway. Don't drink Merlot. But is Merlot back, by the way? Uh, no. They could not <laughs> rip it out fast enough after that movie. Is came that out. true? That's that's true. Does anybody drink Merlot anymore? People do. I like Merlot every now. Secretly and then. late at night. Yes. Uh, okay. Only in private. Uh, only in private. Yeah. But forgetting the movie, right? The whole idea was, uh, but the movie at least put you on the map. Is there was wine here. Right. And, and Pinot Noir, which is what brought me to Santa Barbara County in the first place, is passion for Pinot. And I think what's unique about Santa Barbara County is that we have all these different microclimates that allow us to grow pretty much any grape under the sun. And so you can get Rhone varietals in the central part of the county uh, in Los Olivos and Solvang and uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay up in Santa Maria Valley. So we cover pretty wide spectrum. Is there a, is there a grape you tried to grow here that just didn't work? No, people tried to grow Cab in Santa Maria Valley, Cabernet Sauvignon back in the day, and that didn't work, but that was well before my time. Um, well, I'm not talking about you personally, but I'm just saying, so Cabernet's not big here. Uh, not in Santa Maria. So that's, you know, as I said, they can grow Cabernet in the warmer parts um, of Santa Barbara County, but not up where we are. We're much cooler. Santa Maria Valley is how close to where we are right now? It's about an hour's drive. North. But it's still in the county? Still in the county. Gotcha. And forgetting Merlot because we can't really discuss Merlot anymore. I mean, it's, it's gone. Right. Uh, what's the biggest surprise that people find when they come to Santa Barbara about the wine scene here? Uh, that there is one, first of all. Um, I think, you know, we are, as you said, under the radar. Um, but it, it, it's a little bit of a cultish kind of following, I guess. And, you know, people think of Santa Barbara and they think of the beach and what's down here at Bacara. Yeah. Um, and it's it's our job to try to get the word out a little bit. But I think first and foremost that there is a wine country. That's that's a big and surprise. You started the wi the winery about 11 years ago. So you're young in that respect. You're still a young winery. We are. We're very young um, in the grand scheme of things. People have been, you know, growing grapes here for a very long time. The modern wine industry in Santa Maria started in 1969. So that's young. It's 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 young. Exactly. So is there a way? I mean, and, and I have to ask this question only because I've just learned about this problem about 10 years ago, and then people are telling me it's still a problem or it's not. Can you ship wine from California now? We can. Because you remember, there are certain states that you just couldn't. There's really two that we don't touch. Which are? Uh, Utah and Pennsylvania. <laughs> Utah because you can't figure out alcohol in Utah anyway. Right. And Pennsylvania for reasons I have no clue. Those are no-no states. For whatever reason, they don't allow it. But right. most other states we can ship to. I got you. And the most popular wine? Uh, for us, shocker, um, Arkansas. Um, a lot of family, friends, and supporters back home that uh, show some love for Presqu'ile. And uh, you just told Texas. me you're operating a still, didn't you? No, I don't think I said that. <laughs> <laughs> but the bottom line is, it's a popular wine in Arkansas. It is, yeah, yeah. How many different restaurants now are are completely changing their menus to 
accommodate the whole Santa Barbara wine scene? Um, uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, but, I mean, we're fortunate here that, you know, in little towns like Los Alamos that have, you know, a thriving, really interesting restaurant scene, they do showcase local wines. Um, I think here in the county we get a lot of love from that and, and down in L.A. as well. The biggest surprise for you? Ooh, there's been a lot <laughs> um, that you can't fight Mother Nature and you kind of got to roll with the punches a little bit every now and then. Um, the farming side of things is by far the most challenging that we in, deal in with. In what way? Um, well, the last eight years or so, we've had, you know, persistent drought um, in here in California, and that's created a number of challenges with early harvests. Um, early Whether you liked it or not. We, and we don't. Early bud break which leads to frost issues early in the season. And so there's, there's been a few climactic issues that we deal with. And, and then once you make it, became apparent quickly that then you have to go sell it. And that's a whole other challenge. So you're always looking over your shoulder at the thermometer and, and uh, at the water level. And everybody else making wine, too. <laughs> how, many, how many? Okay, that's the steer. You opened up the winery in 2008. How right. many wineries have come in since? I don't know the exact number, um, but I, I think there have been probably 15 new brands that have started since we've around 15. And you guys talk to each other? Oh, yeah. We're, it's collegial? I, it's it's collegial really? for the most part. Yeah, <laughs> for the most yeah. part. <laughs> There's always a few people who aren't collegial. But. Of course, it's, it's the old stupidity of every guy thinks he has to be able to own a restaurant once in his life. Right. And, and I guess the same thing applies to wineries, too. It does. But, I mean, back to the collegial thing, I think that was one of the main things that drew me here. Um, working at the little winery that I worked at when I first moved from Boulder, uh, made a lot of friends really quickly. And it's, it's a real community here and that's what drew me to it. It's, you know, real people making real wine. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. I always like hotels that allow guests to do stuff outside the hotel. Uh, so many hotels are run with the idea that here are all the great things you can do at the hotel because you're at the hotel, and they don't realize that they, within 30 to 40 miles, there's just so many things they can do that they can enable them to do, and here at the Ritz-Carlton, they've done just that with uh, Jean-Michel Jean Cousteau's Ambassador of the Environment, and uh, I've got two people here who work with them in, a, in an up-close and personal way. I have Holly Lohais, and it's not spelled that way, so I got it right, didn't I? <laughs> you did, thank I you. I did, and you're a marine <laughs> biologist and, of course, a naturalist at the, at the foundation, and Sarah Welsh, who works right here at the Ritz-Carlton, as an ambassador of the environment. So, you know, there's so many misleading words today, you know, ecotourism being one of them. I have no idea what that means anymore, or sustainable, or, you know, you always have to get down to a definition of terms so that people understand what you're doing and they can connect the dots. It's no different than going to your hotel room and seeing that little card on the bed saying, help us save the environment by not washing your towel. And isn't it ironic the card's plastic? I was like, wait a minute, you know. Uh, they have to connect the dots. So what are you guys doing here at this hotel to help the guests connect the dots? Well, I think one of the main things that we're doing is getting people outside and getting them to enjoy the natural environment. You're getting them out of the hotel. Exactly. We're going on our nature trail that we have right here on property. We're going in and exploring the tide pools on our beach. We're giving them that emotional connection to nature. Okay. You just said it, emotional connection. If you don't have the emotional connection, you're not coming back. You don't get it. But Sarah, what's in the tide pools? Well, we have all sorts of interesting vertebrates to find. We have all sorts of amazing 
organizing um, things for people to discover that maybe they don't realize are right in their backyard. So even tiny little chitons, you know, getting to see, I saw a sea otter offshore the other day, dolphins and whales that we have right off the beach. There's some amazing experiences that the kids can have just right out our front door. And some of the older kids as well. Yeah, some of the adults as well. So I've always found if you, if you make the kids happy, they might just bring their parents. And I think it gives adults the chance to explore and discover and, you know, get off their iPhones and go and see what's actually outside. Are you an iPhone forbidden area? We do allow people to take photos, definitely, <laughs> but I don't allow iPads or anything like that in any of my activities. And I don't ever really see kids or adults reaching for them unless they want to take a picture and remember the moment. And I would like to encourage anybody listening to the show that if you want to take a picture and remember the moment, it doesn't necessarily have to include you in that picture. That's very true. <laughs> right? Definitely. The definition of a great picture doesn't have to include you. Now, Holly, you've been with, with, with the society for 20 years. Mm -hmm. You came here as a marine biologist. I did. I studied right here at UC Santa Barbara. So yes. you had a bicycle, too. I did. I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. Everybody at UCSB has a bike. <laughs> and you can still get your, your tickets with your bike, so you have to be careful. <laughs> for speeding? You can, and yeah, not stopping. Are you, telling me that, are you telling me that you've received a few? I, I just know from experience. Oh, you have a friend friends. of a friend. Okay, fine. <laughs> But you came to discover marine biology here, and then you translated that into, or you transitioned to that, to the society. Well, it's an honor to, you know, work under the name Cousteau, because Jacques Cousteau really opened our eyes to the undersea world. And so for Sarah and I and our naturalists here to have the opportunity to share with the guests that we have one of the best, beautiful, unexplored areas around the islands, and to really appreciate the fact they're one of the best hidden secrets here in Southern California. So to be able to stay on, stand on the bluffs here and look out towards the Channel Islands, it's a national park and a national marine sanctuary. So we get it really allow our guests to kind of have a sense of what is below the surface of the sea. And Jacques Cousteau used to always say, people protect what they love. And Jean-Michel continues that statement by how can we protect what we do not fully understand. So our job is to really just kind of be the, the facilitator to get people outside engaged in nature and hopefully give them a sense to kind of look at their place within the natural world and know that we do need to live more sustainably. Uh, you said it. You <laughs> said did. the word. I said your word. <laughs> hey, listen, I was surprised to hear you say that it's unexplored because when you look at the California coastline, at this point in time, 2019, you would think it had been fully explored. No. In fact, there's different research in institutes that are definitely sending down some deep subs into the deeper parts of the channel and even up the coast off of Monterey. I mean, there's new species being discovered all the time. And the, and the sad thing is there are, new, there are species being extinct all the time, too. Absolutely. So, oh, so really, you know, what's below the surface of the sea is sort of out of sight, out of mind. So it's up to us to really give people a sense of their connection and to empower them to learn everything they can about the ocean and really to be ocean stewards and ambassadors of the environment. When we last left off, I, I posited the idea, actually the fact, of how deep the water is out here. It really drops off dramatically. And for most of us, you might snorkel or even or even scuba dive. Your limits are pretty low. I mean, in, in, in terms of what you can really see and what you can experience. So unless you've got a deep sea submersible, you're not able to always connect those dots, right, Holly? Absolutely, but we also have to remember what we do see is the canopy of the kelp forest at the surface and, and more biological richness of the ocean is found in those shallow waters within the kelp forest. And, but, uh, you know, going up the coast, and I, I live on a boat in Los Angeles, so when I go up the coast, I'm seeing so much kelp, especially down near San Diego, and as you come around the corner here in Santa Barbara, it's right out there. Uh, 
What's in that kelp? Oh, anything from microscopic plankton that really gives us a lot of the oxygen we depend on to animals as big as the baleen whales, the gray whales, and humpback whales that might swim through the kelp forest. So all different species. And what's really neat about the kelp forest, it's this three-dimensional underwater really city or ecosystem. So every part of the canopy is filled with life. So whether it's fish at the surface or a sea otter like Sarah saw last week, floating at the canopy and then different fish species along the, the actual stipe of the kelp and then just a, a rich variety of invertebrates and animals that live on the bottom or sessile species on the seafloor. And my family on my mother's side is all from California and they were all in the water. They were all in the water. And they used to, in the, in the 19, you know, 30s, 40s and 50s, they were diving for abalone, mm-hmm. right? That's endangered now. There are. There's, there's different species of abalone, and they are protected. And so with the protection, there are some species that have made quite a remarkable comeback. And so it's not uncommon to see black abalone now in some of our tide pools, especially around the Channel Islands. Um, so we, we know the value of protecting certain species as well as protected areas that give a sense of a nursery for species do to come back, and then they spill over into the remaining areas. Now, you're both connected with the Ritz-Carlton because of, the, of an attachment between the society and the hotel. How does that translate into the menu at the hotel, meaning what kind of fish are not served on the menu? Our chefs definitely promote sustainable seafood here at the hotel. Um, I know with some of, for instance, we do have a type of abalone on the menu, and it is all from, it's sustainably grown, um, and it's just right up the coast. You know, it's within 100 miles, and so it doesn't need to travel far to get to the hotel as well. But we are constantly looking at growing our REACT, our environmental commitment here at the hotel as well, which, you know, with such a big program um it's there's a lot to do and uh, you know a lot to improve upon but it's really nice how much support and understanding it is that we need to protect our environment because i'm sure you know how much fish is mislabeled Mm -hmm. uh, at the market what people think is something is not the the famous chilean toothfish and Mm -hmm. everything else that gets overfished Uh, i was just in the in the azores recently and which used to be a huge robust fishing ground and in fact the portuguese earned their livings as fishermen. That's why they came to America as fishermen, and that's why they have big fishing communities, at least in the beginning, in Massachusetts and Northern California and out in Hawaii. And they were complaining to me that it's getting overfished. They don't know what to do. Fortunately, we have a lot of sustainable seafood uh, fisheries here in California. I mean, I think it's such a well-regulated state. And here in Santa Barbara, you could go to the local Fisherman's Wharf and uh, seafood market on Saturday mornings, and, and all the species are sustainably harvested. So that and, means and there's... And you know that because you go to the market. Yep, and so the species are... There's a little bycatch. And so what most people don't really realize is sort of the, the large... Bycatch. The bycatch and yeah, the industrial fleets that are just raking and pillaging the ocean where we as consumers, we have a lot of power to go and support those fisheries that are doing good. So a lot of our fisheries are, are, are targeted species with limited bycatch. They're seasonal, and the regulation is based on the biology of the species, and we look at the quota over time. What's the way you educate guests? I don't want to call it a stupid question, but what's one of the most uninformed questions that you get from a Ritz-Carlton guest about, about what's out there in the ocean? I think it would surprise you. You know, a lot of our guests are visiting from L.A., and I think they just haven't spent as much time outside as you might expect. Um, And so I wouldn't say there's one particular question. I believe just the general wonderment once they do get outside. Oh, sure, but give me the Hall Hall of Fame silly question. 
I didn't know you could go to the Channel Islands. So most people off of Los Angeles know of Catalina, and Catalina is one of eight Channel Islands, and five of them are within a national park. And as a national park, it's limited on the visitation on a daily basis. As it should be. As it should be. These islands are very fragile ecosystems, high percentage of endemic species, meaning plants and animals that are found on the islands and nowhere else around the world. And if you're a sailor, you should know that the anchorages there are not necessarily well protected. You have to know what you're Oh, absolutely. So we're, we're along a, a, a treacherous coastline where the weather could change just on the, on the flip of a dime. Right. But you do have excursions out there that you can take. Absolutely. So part of our job is to not only share the beautiful natural wonders, but how can visitors get out and appreciate and see for themselves. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Part of the intoxication of a place like Santa Barbara is the food and wine scene. And joining us now, the author and founder of, I love this title, Edible Santa Barbara, Krista Harris. Welcome back, by the way. Well, thank you so much, and welcome back to Santa Barbara. Now, you're a fifth-generation California, and you were raised in San Diego. However, I you was. did something. I know what you did. You moved to UC, Santa Barbara to go to UC Santa Barbara. I did. I went to college in Santa Barbara and never left. I, I, used, I used to lecture <laughs> up here at really? UCSB at the Center oh. for the Study of Democratic Institutions. Nice. And I was the only person there who didn't have a bike. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you yeah. have a bike when I you I had were? a bike. See, I knew it. I Absolutely. Knew it. I knew it. But you came up here for school and then you stayed. I did. I mean, you know, once I got here, th that and I met my future husband up here. So. At school? <laughs> yeah. I, he was he was going, he was getting his master's when I was getting my bachelor's and we ended up together and still here after and, all these years you <laughs> but you started speaking of edible santa barbara you started going to the farmers markets 30 years ago i did so i had a real passion for cooking and loved shopping at the farmers markets even back then when there weren't as many you know farmers there at the farmers market but it's grown and you know then about 10 years ago i started edible santa barbara and i combined that passion with what i knew which was publishing and so it was a perfect fit and here you are, 10 years later. Mm -hmm. We're celebrating our 10-year anniversary this year. It's very exciting. But I would guess, I mean, I go back to when I covered the, the Reagan White House back in the 80s here, mm -hmm. um, and there was already a wine scene. Yes. The food scene wasn't so much. It really wasn't. I think it took the wine scene, in a way, to push the food scene. Yeah. And so, you know, and that happened gradually. It didn't happen overnight. You know, you had restaurants like Bouchon in Santa Barbara that really pushed wine-centric cuisine. Um, and then, you know, gradually it, it's really come along. And just in the last few years, it's gotten amazing. You know, so many great restaurants now, just even since you were last here. I know. It's hard to keep track. And, of course, in a world where everybody's a celebrity chef, that's mm -hmm. a little scary, too. Yeah, I mean, there is that. But I think the real celebrities in Santa Barbara are, you know, really the farmers and the fishermen and the winemakers and the food artisans and, you know, the people that are contributing to our Santa Barbara cuisine, you know, because it's not like anywhere else. In what way? Explain. Well, you know, we're so lucky that we have the ocean. So we have some, you know, like world class uni and, you know, incredible ridgeback shrimp and things like that that you just don't 
find a lot elsewhere. And then you have, you know, wine country. So you have some amazing farmers out there that are growing things, you know, all year long. And then the wine. So, I mean, that's that's a really great combination. We always like to say, you know, what goes together grows together. You know, so the, the wine that you drink and the food that you eat, you know, it, it has a real um, synergy. But that didn't come overnight. No, it's, it's taken a while. And I, I can remember, you know, when we just first started the magazine, um, you know, there, there really weren't that many um, restaurants that were sourcing local, you know, chefs shopping at the farmer's market. And now there are a lot more. We could certainly use even a few more. I'd like to see even more restaurants shopping at the farmer's market. Uh, so, you know, that will continue to grow. But, you know, just recently, um, the Michelin Guide came out for California. And not that Santa Barbara got any stars, but there were a number of restaurants that got plates. So that's a stepping stone. To well, maybe, maybe not. I'm, I'm a big fan of places that don't get stars. Well, that's Because when they true. get stars, they get attitude. When they get attitude, you got to wait, and then they think they're doing you a favor. That's true. You know, yeah, there's nothing wrong with the, you know, the sort of off the beaten path, you know, places that How about don't. this? I, I like restaurants that try harder. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and we, you know, they do have to try harder, especially the restaurants that aren't right there on State Street in Santa Barbara or right, you know, they're sort All of... All right, so let's talk about the restaurants yeah. that aren't right on State Street. Which ones do you love? Oh, well, I mean, there's a lot that I love. I mean, huh, on State Street, you know, um, what comes to mind is Sama Sama, kind of up by the Granada Theater. You know, that's a... a well, the Granada really, Theater is legendary. It is. Yeah, that in the Arlington. Yeah. Oh, we have some great theaters here. Yeah, no That's doubt. the one thing I have to give, give a hats off to to... to um, to Santa Barbara, they preserved the theaters. Yes, exactly. And and the Granada was really preserved. Like it was a you know a movie theater back in the seventies and eighties, and they had to completely restore it to its grandeur. You know, and it's beautiful. So you can you know you can we call that sort of the theater district up there on State Street. You know, near the Arlington and all of that. And so you can find a lot of great restaurants. And um, there's the Good Lion Cocktail bar that has amazing cocktails so, such as oh my gosh well i'm i'm a big fan of their aperol spritz i think that Me they too. do oh my god are you yeah. sure yeah I, I have to tell you a story i was recently okay. in doha in Qatar. Mm -hmm. ended up at the w hotel mm. talked to the maitre d at the club there and he said i'm gonna make you something I, okay it was an aperol spritz and i've like been addicted to it ever since Oh my gosh, my it's favorite. It's so simple. So simple. And it's delicious. But, you know, it has to be done correctly. You know, I have seen some people do an Aperol spritz. It's like, well, oh, that's not quite right. No, and the good be, lion. It, it can't be too sweet. No, it can't be too sweet. And, you know, you got to get the balance right. And the good lion, they were inspired, the name was inspired by a Hemingway short story that takes place in Venice. So, of course, an Aperol spritz would be right up their alley. I know, exactly. But the bottom line is, not only has the food scene changed, it's gotten better mm -hmm. and more diversity. Yeah, there's definitely more diversity. Um, you know, you've got, I mean, we're still not going to be as diverse as, you know, the big cities where you have so much more ethnic. Yeah, exactly. Everywhere, man, across the desert, spare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Boston, Speaking of history, my next guest knows a little bit about it, especially in this neighborhood. She's the author of Society Ladies, How to Santa Barbara, Volume 1, 
Volume 2, and let's not forget Volume 3. Also married to one of our earlier guests. No, brother. Okay, let's call him brother. Okay, we've now just just basically killed a rumor here. <laughs> that was Neil Graffy. She's Aaron Graffy. How are you? <laughs> hey, just fine. That happens a lot even in Santa Barbara. They say, Neil Graffy, is that your father? That's your husband. And I go, no. He's just my brother. Big brother. Exactly. He is heavy and he is my brother. <laughs> well, listen, but the cool thing is you've lived here since preschool. I've been here since preschool. So, I mean, it's easy to do the history since you lived it. I've lived it. I've been here. It's a great place. This is a fantastic place to grow up. But one of the things you were doing, and this gets back to the Santa Barbara Society ladies, is you were writing the Society column. Yes, indeed. So it's gossip all over the place. So I know where, historically, I know where all the bodies are buried. <laughs> and socially, I know where they're going to, when they're going to be buried. So I've got, I've got cut both sides covered. So. And every once in a while, you bury them. Uh, yeah, actually, I write all the obituaries, too, come to think of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about Santa Barbara Society, because if you take a look at the, at the evolution of Southern California, of which Santa Barbara's a part, in many cases, we're talking about some serious old money. Yes, in Santa Barbara, especially because you had the great wealth coming in from the East Coast, the, the robber barons and people like that coming really after the turn of the century, you know, a couple before then, but um, in the teens, in the 20s, through the 30s, building the great mansions uh, in Montecito. So uh, that was definitely here early on. It wasn't just, we kind of came in two waves. So that was the first wave. And probably the second wave is the Oprah wave that came after about 1990. Well, wait, you forgot a wave because there was the old money wave. And then there was JFK and, and his honeymoon in Montecito and then all the movie stars. Well, movie stars didn't really come in here at that point. There was just, if they came in, it was quiet. Ah. So you come to Santa Barbara quiet and you don't want people to make a fuss over you. And this is a place where you hide out because Santa Barbara, the pecking order is longevity. So therefore, if uh, my family's great-great-grandfather settled the Presidio, I have far more clout than you, Mr. Movie Star Celebrity, who just moved here. So what? <laughs> so what? <laughs> right, take that again. Take that. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think one of the things Santa Barbara prided itself on was it wasn't Hollywood and it wasn't show business. That's correct. That's correct. Um, even today, if a movie star comes into a restaurant and you see somebody go up and ask Mr. Movie Star for an autograph, the rest of the room, who are from Santa Barbara, are all, are all diving under the tables with embarrassment. Like, no, 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 you don't pay any attention to that movie star. Obviously, this guy's from Los Angeles and tourist or whatever you are, you are not from Santa Barbara. So it's, yep. Because the folks in Santa Barbara now roll with that. They just roll with it. They roll with that, yeah. So if Oprah walks in or Ellen DeGeneres, it's just, they're just in town. I know. There's, there's an Oprah sighting, so people <laughs> talk about She's not really in, dialed into the community. Some people in the past, such as Burl Ives, uh, lived here. He lived in Montecito. But again, quiet underneath the radar. But yet for society events, he might give a benefit concert. So he was involved in that way into the community. Right, but you would say... From almost day one, the, the, the whole mandate was low-key. Low-key, you got it. All right, but yet again, low-key, but lots of money. But lots of money. And my joke is, the guy that you think looks like a gardener is the one with all the money. <laughs> so, in the pecking order, you So know, basically, there's no dress code here. Um, or is there? Well, there is, but it's a little Santa Barbara, so no over the top, okay? So, ladies, you wear your leather pants when you're on a horse. 
You don't wear those red, shiny leather pants in general. It's just, you know, nothing too over the top. So you've right. got to be a little more subtle. And there's been designers. Luis Estevez was one. He was a Dior winning designer and had done work down in Los Angeles. Well, he did a, stuff for Nancy Reagan, too. And he, when he came to Santa Barbara, he had, he had to tone down everything, even though a great deal of his clientele went down to L.A. to buy this. But once he set up shop here, he had to kind of... You know, put it all down a bit. Well, speaking of Nancy Reagan, when Reagan became president and he had the ranch, I mean, Santa Barbara changed a little bit. No. You sure? Are you sure? <laughs> you no. were inundated with the press corps. Um, they stayed at the on the other end of town. They were at the Biltmore. Yep. And yes, if you saw people going downtown talking into their um, <laughs> into In, their shirt collar, then you figured, oh, it must be you know, for the president's detail. But um, no, for the most time, other than helicopter going over to the ranch or something like that, you didn't actually know he was in town other than the press corps being around town. That was actually your clue. All right, so then what's changed? Um, what's changed, I would say, is uh, a great deal of the money, new uh, celebrity-type money coming in after about 1990, 1992. I would say that's changed and so many of them now on different boards and things like that and and having a taste that goes a little more Hollywood at times than maybe necessarily Santa Barbara it's not really clear-cut and it um, but for longtime residents they would sense that difference exactly now I know Santa Barbara prides itself in not being another Los Angeles that's correct and you fiercely pride yourself on that right <laughs> uh, but you also have some of the problems that Los Angeles has, like weather, extreme weather. No, Santa Barbara, lovely weather. You know, we've had some um, extreme weather hazard things, such as the debris flow, the fire last yes. year. Yes, the mudslides. The mudslides. Mud um, so we have more than our share of disasters, but in terms of general weather, no, it's pretty much you know 65 to 75 degrees, I would say, probably 85% of the year. In Los Angeles, when you're having a very hot day, then at night you're still sweltering. The weather goes down, but instead of being 98, it might go down to 78. In Santa Barbara at night, because of the coastal fog coming in, it's rarely warm and hot in the evening. That's, I mean, I could probably count on my hands over my lifetime that it's been miserable at night. You don't get that. You do get that in the rest of Southern California. Okay, little known trivia fact that you've shared with me that I have to share with the audience. The evolution of the egg McMuffin our friend, the Egg McMuffin, started here in Santa Barbara, yes. <laughs> How? Why? <laughs> well, I guess there was a breakfast worker coming in, a uh, construction kind of guy coming into the McDonald's and saying, you know, he would just like to have some, you know, real breakfast food. And so the owner, Herb uh, Peterson, and he just used the little template that you use for the hamburgers and dropped an egg in that and put it in, and it was tasty, and people liked it, and he was serving it. So you know, officially you have to get this all cleared with the top. So he said, hey, McDonald's Central, I got, a, <laughs> I got something good for you. And they took it from there and said, yes, we officially make this the Egg McMuffin. And you've been trying to live it down ever since, I know. And he said if he only had a nickel, he never got a dime out of that, but if he only had, a, if he only had a penny for everyone sold. Yeah, I got the, I got the completion <laughs> of that sentence. The other thing that started here was the yo-yo. The yo-yo, yes. Uh, a man from the Philippines who was moved here, and he remembered a toy that was uh, something that they played with elsewhere. And he put that together and manufactured it here. I think that was around 1927. So as early on, came from Santa Barbara, which is quite a different thing. 
Eventually, about two years later, Duncan Toy Manufacturing. Oh, that's right, the Duncan, of course. Okay, so they grabbed onto that, they started making it, and then, of course, and then they bought him out, and, but that's where it started. I mean, of all things, you wouldn't think yo-yo would start here. But you see, with a little <laughs> string, if you attached it to the Egg McMuffin, you could have the yo-yo right there. Yeah, we could, and then you would do is you would do the, whatever, the cat's crawl, and when it comes back up, then Or the that's cat's when you cradle. Cat's, cat's cradle. cradle, yes. <laughs> I love him already because he served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Thailand, <laughs> which is my, my second home oh. uh, for, for many, many years. Uh, but most importantly, he's the president and CEO of Direct Relief International, not to mention he's been a Santa Barbara resident for 20 years. Thomas Tig, how are you? Fine. Thanks for having me. First and foremost, you know, we talk about nonprofits all the time on this show and how people can get involved. Let's first explain Direct Relief International. Well, Direct Relief was founded here in Santa Barbara in 1948 by war immigrant refugees who'd fled kind of the ravages of post-war Europe, actually during the war, and ended up here in Santa Barbara. And with their own money, be, uh, began a foundation to help their former co-workers and uh, family members and people they knew personally. And it kind of evolved into, this is prior to this concept of corporate social responsibility, but these were immigrant businessmen who looked to do what they could do and with people like themselves and uh, urging companies to participate and focused on health access to health things that people could not afford. Since that time, it's um, expanded to work in all 50 states, all U.S. territories, and about 100 countries a year, providing access to medications and other essentials they can't afford. And of course, when you've got that big a ground to cover, you've got to be able to mobilize quickly. Right. How do you do that? Well, I think technology helps a lot. I think it's, uh, like everything else, it's been profound to um, understand, really, the dilemma is <clears throat> today is, Markets are so well-defined, the commercial markets, people are, their, their buying habits are tracked on, as they're shopping online. So if you have money, there's a high desire to serve you and please you, and the market's very responsive. For, for those who are not really commercial actors, they're poor, very little is known about them. So I think uh, what's been very helpful is try to take some of these tools that were developed for business and apply them for areas that are important, but they're not attractive from a business perspective. No one goes looking in business for who cannot buy their goods and services. That's kind of what Direct Relief does, who can't you, afford it. Well, you're it, giving them the it. access. Right. So I think to be able to mobilize, uh, you can mobilize fast, but you need to mobilize well and have it focused. So I think the information and really networking, bringing information so you can have a clear picture of where the needs in the world are and have a kind of a logistics pathway to get what's needed to where it needs to be is efficiently as possible. Now, there's the short-term and the long-term approach. Right. Uh, short-term, obviously, is to be able to respond as quickly as possible to an emergency. Right. Then there's a the long-term where you can actually identify a problem that's been there a while and begin to solve it that way. Right. And, you know, I think that they're very similar in our experience. I think we, um, direct relief tends to get attention where, the, where there's a high-profile emergency. Hurricane Marie in Puerto Rico, for sure. example. But what direct relief does is what we were doing the 10 years before Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. So I think we looking for places that you were are, already there. Yeah, and and really focused on people who are rooted in these communities, who serve people who are less fortunate, and that's who our clients and partners are. So I think that tends to be our jumping off point when there's an emergency. That's where we look because the people who are most vulnerable in a disaster situation tend to be the people who are the most vulnerable the anyway, day before. Anyway, yeah, right, exactly. Well, you know, it's 
it gets down to a definition of terms that most of my audience and most Americans don't totally get, and that is the definition of a first responder versus the importance response. Right. Uh, most people, in a, most civilians in a disaster want to say, how, how can I go and help? Well, that's where people write checks. Right. Because you can't, you're not really a qualified first responder. Right. Right? But it's after the first responders leave, that's where the real work starts. Right. Right? Yeah, you're right. It's a highly technical skill. I think that initial outset where there's search and rescue that's often dangerous and requires specialized training and gear. Um, but, you know, that is rather time limited. And then, as you said, the, um, the long, hard slog then kicks in of how people rebuild their communities, their lives, and there's many dimensions to that. So I think uh, Direct Relief tries to be there as fast as possible, but the first responders are always people in the community themselves. Of course. And um, so we stick with people for a long time, and uh, that's important to do. For someone listening to this show who wants to get involved and be a part of Direct Relief, how do they do that? The best way is to look at directrelief.org, where we try our best to have all the information about what we do, where we do it, how we work, the people and places we work with. And there's a vast variety of places and communities that would love nonprofit organizations and charitable organizations that really operate under the radar for the most part. They do terrific work that's not visible. They can't compete for attention with the but, kind but, of commercial actors, but they do amazing work. But from my perspective, they do such great work precisely because they're so local. Right. Right? And you're yeah. in the community. You're not you're not just picking up a phone somewhere. You're there. Right. And can people go and travel with you guys? It, ten, it tends to be if, if they have a specialized skill. We it, don't right. want to thrust someone into a dangerous situation. No, but I think, you know, we have physicians, our board member, Members, uh, many of them have interesting backgrounds. We have a broad medical advisory board, and we're a support organization that works with groups all around the country and the world. Um, so I think we have a pretty broad network of people to pull from, but, but those interested can certainly contact us if they have interests or desires. Um, we'd love to do whatever we can to accommodate their interests as well. And the website again? Directrelief.org. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on. And uh, my fly next guest, I never got a chance to say this about Let's anybody. He's actually a Los Angeles native. Away. Nobody's from Los Angeles, but he is. Uh, and he's also the banquet chef here at the hotel. Uh, but what's interesting, he's also been a part of the Ritz Carlton family for many other hotels around the country. But there's a different style here at this hotel and different challenges. And, and opportunities when it comes to the, the choice of food, the choice on the menu, and what guests really want these days. Tony France, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So let's start with expectations of guests. You know, there are two words I hate, and I'll tell you the two words I hate because they're misapplied at almost every hotel, and those two words are fine dining. Uh, it's like, I want to eat in your crappy dining room? No, I just I want to eat in a nice dining room. So, of course. Uh, and, and usually when they describe the words fine dining, they're whispering, and this is our fine dining room. That's okay, fine, stop. Okay, I got it. But the menus have changed, though. Correct. Um, and when you, look, this is a, a an upscale resort hotel. Uh, you've got a very demanding clientele. They want 24-hour room service, or at least the option of it. They want to be able to order what they want to order, when they want to order it, and you have to source it. Correct. Right? So there's the menu, and then there's what they want. Of course. Okay, so let's talk about this. What's been on your menu that you can't take off the menu because everybody wants it? And what's on the menu that you try to put on the menu that nobody wants? I think there's just a way of actually presenting food that nobody wants 
I don't think there's a food that nobody really wants. Um, I, I, think, I can do it. Yeah, I mean, maybe you could do it. But okay, ready? It's a five-letter word. Here it comes. <laughs> okay, give it to me. Liver. Yeah, see, there's this negative connotation that comes with liver. Well, no kidding. But if you do it right and you you use the right but that's uh, menu, technique. But that, that's menu psychology, of too. Of course, of course. But I, don't, I think there's a time and a place for ingredients that will work and will not work. And I think a lot of that is based on your vicinity, where you're located, your clientele, and the guests that you are serving, and then also the restaurant setting that you are uh, hosting guests in. Uh, for myself, personally, I oversee the Bacara Bar. And the Bacara Bar, they want food that's, you know, that elegant gastropub but there's this casual familiar feel to it um so one See, of the, so you can't just do french fries you got to do parmesan fries or truffle fries of or, course but there's always that guest that is going to want the option that you know what i just want great crispy french fries and maybe i just want a house made ioli and you just have to give it to them and and that's okay because sometimes that's an iconic thing in a restaurant um, but one of the things that i've done most recently in in, in our bar is uh, we did this spare ribs dish and our spare ribs, you know, pork ribs, pork ribs. And and it's like, how do you take food that almost is so messy and uh, can be kind of sloppy and kind of refine it? Kind of sloppy? Yeah, kind of sloppy. I mean, it depends on how you cook them. You don't want to, you don't want anyone to be like breaking their neck, trying to pull the meat off their bone. But, um, but if it's, if it falls right off the bone and it's presentable and it's familiar and it's easy um, not too many ingredients, not complicated. It's more appealing to our guests. So we took pork spare ribs and we did this uh, shermoula spice on them, which is like a North African kind of uh, Moroccan spice to it, right? And then we uh, sous vide them um, until they're fork tender and they fall off the bone. And then we use that existing liquid and we turn that into like this untraditional barbecue sauce. We just serve it with some crispy popped uh, peewee potatoes and we do a nice cabbage slaw right on top with a grilled lime for some acidity. And that has proved to be one of our biggest staples in our bar. And how's the dry cleaning bill? Uh, I mean, we serve it with a very nice wet napkin. (laughs) (laughs) A large wet napkin. A very large one, yes. (laughs) I got it. But in a way, people like to have experiential one-upsmanship, so they'll go for that. Of course, of course. And, you know, you said something about fine dining. I think fine dining has evolved, and I think the culinary scene has evolved as well, and it will continue to evolve. And I think we're moving away, not moving away from fine dining. I think it's more of like a signature dining experience, and it's what makes you... Uh, memorable in that regards when people come to dine at your hotel. Well, do you have a signature dish? Me personally? On the menu, yeah. On the menu, I I love those ribs that we do. I can honestly say that it's one of my favorite things because I think that was one of the biggest challenges that I had was, you know, I want to put something that has this not a negative connotation, but it's like a sloppy connotation, which you only get in like a barbecue smokehouse. And I want to put that on the menu. And the challenge was how do you put that on there and and make it refined and and you know, make it easy for guests to eat at a bar. You know, at a hotel like this, it, it almost goes without saying, you're going to get a room with a view. Of course. But you also want the food with a view, too. Yes, the food has to match all the time. And, uh, you know, we were so fortunate to be centrally located in California. I mean, we're in the Central Coast, and we, we have this uh, locale of dairy farms and these creameries and local produce and abalone farms and you know you could go right down to the pier and you could get lobster right off the pier so there's this freshness that we have too that we're so fortunate to uh, be surrounded by so basically you have the choice of the fresh lobster or the somewhat messy ribs Uh, of course of course yeah for me for me personally yes but i oversee many things i oversee many things um most importantly, banquets, of course, and so there's more variety in that. But when it when I'm going to hone hone in on is that. All right. So order the order the pork ribs at the bar at the Bacara Bar. 
With crispy fries. With the crispy fries. And the homemade aioli. And the homemade aioli always has to be homemade. But better be homemade. Yeah, of course. Of course. No, nothing's coming out of a can with you. Uh, never. Never. I don't, I don't, I don't allow that. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.